We're in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, last week we kicked off this series that we entitled, Who Am I? Uh, picking up this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians that found themselves in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. Uh, they comprised a church that was pastored by Timothy's, I'm sorry, by Paul's spiritual uh, disciple Timothy. Uh, it was a church that was doing a lot of great things. So these individuals had come from some pretty bad backgrounds. They were individuals that were uh, in places because of the culture around them uh, with a fascination of the occult. Uh, sexual expression and experimentation was all around them. And they had come to realize that this world and all that was in it was the source of where they would find contentment and fulfillment in this world. And Paul reminds them of who they are in Christ, that none of those things can bring the satisfaction that they're looking for. And so as we pick up this book that it, uh, distances itself 2,000 years from us and, and a half a globe away, we have much that we can glean from this incredible book. And we're going to do so under this heading, Who Am I? And last week we spent a lot of time saying and articulating that that is the fundamental question that our world is facing today. Who are we? Oh, when we ask that question, we ask, what are we made of? And, and what are we all about? And, and what defines who we are? And, and, and therefore, what should we be doing with our lives? And how should we be living our lives? And this is the question that our world is struggling with. And, and most importantly, or most especially, uh, the youngest around us are asking this question and are being deceived by the world and by the devil in identifying themselves in things that are not their true identity. We spent some time last week, and if you weren't there, I'd, I'd really encourage you to go back and go to our YouTube page, our Facebook page, where you can find our, our messages to go back and listen. You will see that the world identifies itself in five different ways. Just write these down if you weren't with us last week. The first way we identify ourselves is by our status, uh, by the amount of money we have, by, by the job that we have, by the title we carry, by the degrees uh, that we have earned. We identify uh, by those things. The second thing we identify ourselves by is by our skin color. Or maybe that's how we identify others, how we view ourselves, how we view others, by the color of our skin. The third one, and it's a big one these days, is by our sexuality. And so we have these feelings, we have these desires, we have these attractions, and we assume wrongly that those define who we are. We assume because we feel a certain way, therefore uh, we have uh, a certain identity. And as a result of that, culture is telling us that this is true, this should be affirmed, and this should be endorsed uh, by those and by others around it. Number four, we, we are identifying ourselves by the stuff we have. Uh, that's why we when we get a new piece of te technology, a new a car, a new piece of clothing, we feel different about ourselves. We begin to identify ourselves as better than we were without those things. And again, we do so wrongly. And then finally, we identify ourselves by the struggles we have, whether it's our own physical medical conditions we have or mental or emotional struggles that we face um, or uh, the struggles that we have faced with relationships. We begin to identify ourselves. We begin to define ourselves by those maladies, those issues, those ailments. And all of them are wrong. That is not how we are to identify ourselves. So when the Bible talks about identity, write this down, it identifies it in two ways. 
you either identify yourself in Adam, the Bible says, that is in yourself. Now, the reason why it says in Adam is because Adam is the example of the one who had an opportunity to relate with God and chose to rebel against God. So Adam is the example of all of us who live selfishly in rebellion to God. So you, if you are living for yourself and in rebellion to God as commands, you are living in Adam. You are living in yourself. That is your identity. That is how God identifies you. You are living in your sin. Now, the people that Paul is writing to in the book of Ephesians, he is going to say they are in Christ 25 times. He's going to say, you are in Christ. You are in him. You are in God. And in Christ is that you are living in submission to God and his word. You are living in submission to his lordship. You are living in submission to his identification of who you are. You are defining yourself by his terms of definition. So either you are in Christ or you are in Adam. Which one do you identify today? All other labels, all other identities will do you no good. They are foolishness to this world. They are foolishness in their endeavors. And so either we're in Christ or we're in Adam. So Paul kicks off this letter by telling the church, you're in Christ, you're in Christ, you're in Christ. And the reason why he wants to hammer away at that nail is if we truly would recognize who we are in Christ, it, number one, it would keep us from falling prey to the devil and the world's lies and temptations. And two, we would live with so much more joy and contentment and peace because we would recognize who we really are. We are sons and daughters loved by the most high God who is in heaven. And when we recognize that, and we know that, listen to me, friends, we will not fall to the devil's schemes, but we will fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit, and we will live in the light as he is in the light. And so this morning, what Paul wants to do is he wants to remind us of who we are in Christ because of the salvation we have in him. So let's pick up this book again, as we're going to do for the next handful of weeks and into months, and we're going to pick up in verse 3 of chapter 1. But we're going to focus our time and attention starting in verse 7 through 14. But remember, verse 3 through 14 is one big run-on sentence of praise and adoration and glory given to God for all that he has done in saving his people from their sins. So let's start in verse 3 at the beginning of this long sentence, and let's read it in its entirety. Here's what Paul says about what we are in Christ because of our salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose in him, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here's our text for the morning. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will 
according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask that you would remind us this morning of all that you've done for us and that it would lead us to live differently to praise you more thoroughly and to give you all the honor that is due your name. You have done so much for us and we forget and we are ignorant of so much. And so teach us and lead us and guide us the incredible depths you've gone to save us. We do so in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Well, I'm going to age myself for you this morning and tell you when I was growing up in the 80s, there was a commercial for a spaghetti sauce called Prego. And Prego had this whole thing that it was different than all other spaghetti sauces because it would rival uh, the, the best uh, Italian mom's recipe of spaghetti sauces. All the herbs and spices, all of it, all contained in a jar. And after each of the ads that they would do on TV, there was a slogan that Prego would say. And it would end with this, Prego, and then three words would come out. Does anybody remember the three words, Prego? It's in there. That's right. It's in there. And what they were trying to tell you in those ads was this. I found this on the internet. And it said the following, the slogan it's in there for the Prego brand of pasta sauce is meant to communicate that the sauce is made with high quality, real ingredients and is packed with flavor. The slogan suggests that all the goodness and taste consumers want are already inside the jar and ready to be enjoyed. Now you're thinking in the third service, Pastor Tim's hungry. That's why he's bringing up spaghetti sauce. But the reason why I'm bringing up this is because what Paul is delineating in these verses from 7 to 14 is he's talking about salvation. And if he was to bottle up God's salvation, what he would say to every question, every concern, every thought about our salvation, everything that we could throw at salvation, Paul would say this, it's in there. It's in there, it's in there, it's in there, it's in there. All of the quality, all of the ingredients, all of the goodness, everything that you're looking for in your salvation is in there. God has made sure of it. And what I want to do today is to remind the people of God, who are we? We are the sons and daughters of the Most High God, and here is why. Because he has saved us and lavished his grace and mercy upon us. And how has he done that? Paul is going to delineate that truth in these verses ahead of us. To do so, we need to look at three things. I want you to know right away for those in the room and those online, my first point's my longest. So don't get worried. We're gonna get out of here by 3 p.m. You'll be fine. 
So here's where we're going. The first thing we need to do is we need to rediscover the reach of God's redemption. We need to rediscover the reach of God's redemption. Paul begins this part of this by reminding us how far, how long, and how deep God has had to go to get to us in our sin. The lengths and the depths he had to traverse to redeem us and forgive us from our sins. Now notice in the text right away, in verse 7 it says, in Christ, remember he's going to say that 25 different times, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Let's start there and move our way backwards. You see, to understand our salvation, we have to understand our sin. And Paul calls our sin here trespasses. Now, he uses the Greek word uh, that is transliterated uh, paroptoma, paroptoma. And, And that word there is used three times in this letter. And it literally means to fall or to stumble. That's the first part of the definition. We love that definition when it comes to our sin. Because when we sin, we say, I had a fall. I stumbled. That sounds innocent enough. That sounds benign enough. I mean, we all have tripped. We've all stumbled. It wasn't on purpose. It it just happens. Sometimes we lose our footing. Sometimes we don't know there's something in our way. And we have a fall. And it's embarrassing, but everybody's been there and everybody's done that. And, it, and it's not really anything we would blame anybody for. But the problem with that is by saying that or defining our sin as that is only half of the definition. You see, what Paul is saying is, yes, it's a fall and it's a stumble, but this word paroptoma literally means it's a fall or a stumble because of rebellion and opposition towards God. Uh, To put this in layman's terms, if you will, on the athletic field, it's called a foul. In the legal world, it's a violation. Uh, That's why the ESV that we're working through uh, calls it a trespass. It's a sin. Uh, This is literally, to define it, is a blatant and rebellious violation to God's prescribed boundaries and commands. Now let's stop there for a moment. Let's recognize what he's saying. When we sin... And the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are trespassers. All of us are violators. And the people of of the Ephesian church, they themselves were trespassers and violators. They themselves had come from lives of sin and had been found in Christ because of his salvation for them. And now we're living in Christ. Now here is the problem. We didn't leave our sin the moment we got saved. That sin kept hanging around. It kept showing and rearing its ugly head. And that's why Paul has to tell the people in Ephesus over and over again to not live that way anymore. Uh, Notice with me, just as we kind of jet tour through the book of Ephesians, a couple sins that were still around even after they had come to know Christ. The number the first one, there's five of them, was idolatry. That's why in uh, chapter 1, verse 21, Paul has to tell these people who are in Christ to make Christ number one in their lives. Why? Because 
because they had come from a place, they had come from a time in their life where Christ was not number one. So notice in verse 21 of chapter one, he says, Jesus needs to be far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and his name needs to be above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one is to come. Because we as Christians, as trespassers, have a tendency to put other things as more important as a priority over Christ instead of Christ being number one. The second sin that they had uh, was the sin of immaturity. Go to chapter four. Chapter four. It says in chapter four, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, which is the head. And so there was this immaturity that they had before Christ and, and even in Christ, they found themselves going back to it. And what is immaturity? Immaturity is thinking about yourself and thinking only about the present. And so Paul says, you gotta quit thinking about yourself. You need to start thinking about others. You gotta quit thinking about just the moment and living for the moment and start living for tomorrow and thinking about the future. And if you think about that, children live for themselves. Children live in the moment. Adults live for others, hopefully, and they live with the future in mind. The Ephesian church struggled with living with immaturity. Number three, they lacked integrity. Verse 25 of chapter 4. He goes on, he says, and the integrity is the use of their words. Therefore, put away any falsehoods, any lies, and let each of us speak the truth with our neighbor. You see, before they had come to Christ, they were telling lies. Lies to get them out of trouble, lies to get them ahead in work, lies to uh, their spouses, lies to their neighbors, lies to their friends, lies to strangers. And Paul says, you can't live that way anymore. You're now in Christ. Now you need to put on truth. You've got to speak with integrity. He goes on, he says the fourth one, immorality, immorality. And in verse uh, chapter five, verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity, he says, and covetousness must not be named among you as it is proper among the saints. He goes on, he says, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking, which is out of place. Verse five, for you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. And so he says, I know how you used to live. I know you went from one bed to another. I know fornication was a big part of your life, but you gotta stop that. You need to be faithful to your spouse. You need to be faithful to your commitments. I know your neighbors, I know your friends are living lives of immorality, but for you, it needs to stop. He goes on with one more and he says, the issue of intoxication. Chapter five, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, he says, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He says you cannot get through life by filling yourself with alcohol. That is not what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ is to be filled with the Spirit. So here we are, and we were sinners before Christ met us, and we're still struggling with sin, and herein lies the problem. We don't take our sin seriously. We don't take what our sin means to a holy God as we should. We call them faux pas. We call them little mistakes. 
We, we call them our issues, our, our struggles. But what God calls them are trespasses, violations. Listen, the, the church in our world today hates the, world, the word sin. Uh, the church today bristles at it. Uh, many times when a preacher like myself will talk about who we are and the sin we have, uh, many people will leave and say, I don't want to hear that. I want to hear how good I am. I want to hear how great I am. The largest church in America known for its TV ministry will never, they will tell you, we will never use the word sin. It's unbecoming. It's not worth it. It makes people feel bad, and we don't want to do that. Friends, we will never understand, listen to me, how great our salvation is until we know how great our sin is. We will never know that. And some of us have no idea the depths of which God has gone because we've never really owned up to how truly sinful we are. And here's how I know. Listen to me, church. Do you know how we would sing if we really truly understood how sinful we were and how gracious and merciful God was, the roof of this place would have cracks in it because we would be declaring, oh my goodness, Lord, I was so sinful. I was so filled with filthiness. Woe to me. I am ruined, Isaiah said. And you came, and you redeemed me, and you saved me. I came to this realization this last Monday. Amanda and I went to a family funeral, and my family is Middle Eastern, and the woman that passed away was a cousin of ours, and, and uh, she was of Armenian background, and we were in an Armenian church, and they had an a, a Armenian prayer uh, guide in uh, each of their pews. And I'm thumbing through it, and I find this prayer of confession, and it knocked my socks off. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this, I need to tell my people about this on Sunday. This is what it said. And man, if we would take this to heart, it says this, I've sinned against the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Truly, I've sinned against God. Therefore, I confess in the presence of God and before all the saints, all the sins I've committed. Now, here we go. Here's the catalog of sins. I've sinned in thought, in word, in deed. I've sinned willingly and unwillingly, knowingly and unknowingly. I've sinned against God. I have also sinned by the sevenfold transgressions of the deadly sins, by pride and all its forms, envy and all its forms, anger and all its forms, sloth and all its forms, covetousness and all its forms, gluttony and all its forms, lust and all its forms. I have sinned against God. Stop there. Don't turn it. That's a lot of sins. That's seven times seven. We are sinning. And, and remember what the slide said before. We sin and we know we're sinning and sometimes we don't even know we're sinning. It doubles down. Notice what the Bible says and what this prayer says about our sin. Turn the page. I have also sinned against all the commandments of God. And you say, wait a minute, I have not sinned all of those. I know I haven't. Remember what Jesus said? You've sinned one, you've broken them all. So he goes on. He says, I've sinned all against all the commandments of God, both prescribed and prohibited. For I've neither performed the prescribed commands of God, meaning I haven't done what God told me to do, nor have I abstained from that which is prohibited. I've accepted the laws, but was slothful in keeping them. So this is what he's saying there. I amen them on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, I wasn't very good at keeping them. I was invited into the order of Christianity, but was found unworthy of them. 
by my works, knowing the evil, I willingly followed it, and from good works I purposely kept away. Woe to me, woe to me, woe to me. Which of my misdeeds shall I recount? Of which shall I confess? My sins are innumerable. My iniquities are unspeakable. My pains are intolerable. My wounds are incurable. I have sinned against God. If we would capture how truly sinful we are, we would understand when Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. And then... After saying I was dead in my trespasses and sin, I get to say the greatest three-letter word that was ever written, but God, who is rich in mercy, saved me. He saved me. And so notice what happens. We get the trespassing down. I've trespassed against God, and now what does God do? The only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. What does God bring? Now notice, now we start working our way backwards. We're trespasses. With our trespasses, he brings redemption through his blood and forgiveness. This word redemption is an important word. This word redemption leans to, uh, first of all, liberate that which was enslaved. And so the first thing that God does is he gives us freedom from the thing that was holding us in bondage. Brothers and sisters, we need to recognize before Christ, we were in bondage to our sin. Here's the reason why the world identifies itself usually with a sin. Because it believes, and rightly so, it believes it's in bondage to those things. And it doesn't know where that sin began and ends and where it begins and ends. Because that sin is so pervasive in their life, they don't know how to get out of it. And so they've just come to realize that's who I am. You know, we don't use that word enslaved. We use a cleaner word in our definition. We use the word addicted. I'm addicted to these things. Well, Paul says you're enslaved. And so what Jesus does to addicted, enslaved individuals to sin is he comes and he sets you free. And whom the Son sets free, they're free indeed. Now, how does he set them free? He pays their bounty. He pays the price that is held against them. So here, half of the people in the Ephesian church no doubt would have been under uh, the place or practice of slavery. That was about the percentage of people in Asia Minor in the first century that were slaves. So half of these people reading this text would have been like, Jesus set us free? Oh, to be free! To be liberated! What an awesome thing! And so Jesus now sets us free. How does he do it? Notice what it says. It is done so through his blood. So the way that Jesus sets us free, because our sin is so great, listen church, your sin and my sin is so great that there was nothing in this world that could redeem it. There was nothing in this world that could pay for it. That someone outside of this world had to come. That heaven had to send its best, Jesus Christ, to come into this world, live a perfect life. Our sin is so bad that Jesus had to come and be so good in order to cancel out the debt of sin in our lives. And to do so, the Lamb of God had to be slain. 
He had to die on a cross. He had to shed his blood in order for the penalty for your sin and mine to be canceled once and for all. So the next time you start talking away, you start sugarcoating or whitewashing your sin, you stop in your tracks and recognize the great cost that it cost our Savior to cover your sin and to turn that which was crimson to be as white as snow. We need to recognize, church, the depths of which God went to save us, to redeem us, to forgive us through His blood. Now notice that this redemption, he goes on and he says this redemption, verse 8, was lavished upon us. That word lavish is used 39 times in the New Testament. And uh, the two most prevalent places that you would know this word being used in the New Testament. First is when Jesus is in the temple and he's watching people give their money to the temple and he's watching people come in with their big sacks of money and putting it down and making a big fuss about it. And then this widow comes in and she gives the widow's might. And he says she gave lavishly. She gave more than everybody else. She gave abundantly because she gave all that she had. Now, what that means is when Jesus says that his redemption and forgiveness was lavished upon us, what that means is God gave everything that heaven had, he gave to cover our sin. And so he gave Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so Jesus comes and he lavishes us with his love, his grace and mercy. But the second use of that word is seen a couple different times in the gospel, this word lavished, when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. And when he's feeding the 5,000, after it's done, after everybody has had their full, they have eaten in all abundance, Jesus commands the 12 disciples to get baskets and to go collect everything that's left over. And Jesus uses this word lavishly when it describes the overflowing abundance of the baskets of what was returned. What is being said here, my friends, is that what Jesus has done in our salvation is he has not only given us everything we need in Christ to cover our sin, but he, so think about this, your sin has been emptied out of your cup, and now he's poured all of his grace and mercy into your cup, and your cup can't contain it, and it's overflowing, and you're like, well, what's happening to that excess? Notice what Paul says later on in the text. He says, where it's going is found in verse 11, where you have obtained an inheritance. Where is that inheritance coming from? God's salvation is so great, is so immense, is so immeasurable, that he has filled your cup of redemption, and it's pouring over, and God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to collect that and give it to them as an inheritance. Now that would have been a great place for an amen. My goodness. Oh, how great a salvation. 
God is showering upon you each and every day more of his blessings in our redemption and forgiveness. I told you last week, being a Christ follower, being in Christ is like being a kid on Christmas Day every day because we are seeing the overflow of heaven on a daily basis. His goodness, his mercies are new every morning. And we're experiencing this. So the question is then, my friends, are we enjoying this? Are we enjoying this inheritance? Are we waking up every morning fully contented, full of joy, full of peace, full of hope, recognizing this? I was dead in my trespasses and sin, but God made me alive in Christ Jesus, reconciling me back to himself, redeeming me, forgiving me of those sins, and now, because he lavishes his love upon me, every day I wake up with a new blessing from heaven, and I will have that until kingdom come. And so he's pouring it out, and his shovel is way bigger than mine. And so the more I give back to him, the more he shovels it back to me. And I live in that place, and therefore I am blessed. I'm blessed. If that doesn't move us to a place of worship, if that doesn't move us to a place of obedience, then, brothers and sisters, I don't know what will. Now, now I know what you're thinking. Right away you're saying, "But, but Tim, you don't know what I did this week. This is all great, but... I didn't live like I was in Christ this week. You should have heard the things I said. You should have seen the things I looked at. You should have been a part of the way I acted. You should have seen what I did at work or at school or what I do at home. Man, Tim, you should have seen what I did on the way to church today. We cleaned things up when we got in the parking lot, but man, on Bliss Road, it it was a war happening in the car. And the devil's beating you up right now. And the devil's saying, hey, this is for the person sitting next to you. I know you profess faith in Christ, but you haven't lived like that. And, and let's just, and the, and the devil's a good Bible student. He says, just look, uh, you're none of these things. So who is this written to? To the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, not you. To the ones who are holy and blameless in his sight, not last week, that ain't you. And you're sitting there and you're saying, I wish I could say that, but I'm not that. Brothers and sisters, remember, it's not who you are, it's who you are in. You are in Christ Jesus. The old is gone and the new has come. When we sin, Christ is there interceding on our behalf, saying it's taken care of, it is finished, it is purchased, it is paid for. The old is gone and the devil wants to deal with the past. All you need to remind the devil of is his future. It's done. And so you get there and you're like, but this isn't for me. Well, here's the the thing. Now we get to point two. See, we'll be done by three. We're right on time, okay? Point two, how do we get there? We hold on to the Holy Spirit for help. We hold on to the Holy Spirit for help. These last two points are gonna move really fast, so get ready. Nor verses 13 and 14. In Christ you will also who, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, you believed in him, and notice what happened. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here you are, you're feeling pretty downtrodden, you have been sinning. Here you are, you're in Christ, and you blew it this week. 
And you've been blowing it week in and week out. And the devil's got you feeling terrible. Your conscience is making you feel terrible. And rightly so. You have blown it. And you're starting to wonder, am I in it? Am I in Christ? Who am I? I must not be saved. But, but you know, you know, I, I was walking with the Lord and I've just had a bad bout here for the last couple months maybe. And I don't know what to do. And the devil's saying you were never in it in the first place. Well, God wants you to know you are in it. And the Holy Spirit says, I promise it. You see, the promise of the Holy Spirit got placed on you when you came to know Christ. Notice what it says. So that you, the first to hope in Christ, verse 12, might be to the praise of his glory in him when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him at that moment. At that moment, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were given a divine birthmark that will never leave you And that birthmark reminds you and tells you, even in your most sinful times, you are in Christ. And in that moment, it is a guarantee. What the Holy Spirit is saying is this. Now notice the triune nature of our salvation. God chooses, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit holds you, intercedes for you, and makes sure you get to the finish line. Brothers and sisters, you never have to worry if you're ever going to lose it in Christ. Here's why. Because the Holy Spirit says, I guarantee you won't. I am here to see you to the end. I am here to see you get your inheritance. I am here to see you get to the finish line victorious. And some of us need to be rehearsing this in our heads over and over again and not allow the devil to think that we have lost something. The Holy Spirit's job is to remind us that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And so, in light of all this, my friends, what are we to do? We are to live in light of his love. We are to live in light of his love. I love what George Whitfield, the great preacher of America, said when he said this. What could the Lord Jesus Christ have done for you more than he has? Nothing. Then don't abuse his mercy. Instead, let your time be spent in thinking and talking of the love of Jesus. And so what Paul says is we are to live, twice he's going to say this, to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory. How do we live to the praise of his glory? Two things, and we'll shut this thing down. Number one, we live to the praise of his glory by believing all that he has told me about my past. Believing all that he's told me about my past. That is, number one, to believe what he's told me about my sin. Do you believe you are as sinful as God has said you are? If you don't, you don't need Jesus. So you have to, we have to believe that we are sinners in need of God's immeasurable grace. Do you believe that? Number two, do you believe that Christ has done all that he said he did to save you? Now the devil in the world is going to say no to that and you need to say yes, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. I believe what God has said about my past and about what Christ did in the past on the cross of Calvary. I believe it, I believe it. But notice it says we, we are to hope in it, the text says. 
And that means we are to hope in the future. So I believe what he says in the past and I hope for what he says he's gonna do in the future. And so he says there's an inheritance waiting for me in the future and I'm gonna hope in that. And that means I'm able to smile in the present. I'm able to look with joy in the present. I'm able to experience trials of many kinds in the present because I've got an inheritance waiting for me in glory. And I recognize that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. I know that my Lord and Savior, after dying on the cross for my sins, said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, then I'm gonna come back and take you to be with me forever. That's my hope. That's my future. That's my end. And so whatever happens between now and then, it's nothing because I've got the greatest desire dessert waiting for me in glory and I'm going to get there one day and it's going to make these light and momentary trials nothing in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to me on that great and glorious day. Do you believe in the past and are you hoping for the future? That is how we live to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen? So remember who you are in Christ. Remember what Christ has done for you in salvation and live in light of it, believing what he's done and hoping for what he's going to do in the days to come.